0: Let's be honest here, high school sucks. It's socially awkward, culturally confusing, and academically irrelevant. And though the first two might largely be an inescapable part of the teenage experience, the third is of critical concern to both the stability of society and the health of the economy, which is why we wanted to spend some time learning more about what's happening in the world of primary education and the ways in which it's affecting the future of work. In this episode, we're joined by Connie Liu, founder of Project Invent, a nonprofit whose stated mission is to, quote, empower students with the 21st century skills to succeed individually, make an impact globally through invention, creating a generation of fearless, compassionate problem solvers. A graduate of both MIT and Stanford, as well as a former high school teacher at the Nueva School in Silicon Valley, Connie has been a part of some of the most innovative educational institutions in the world. That's given her a unique perspective about both the current state and the future state of high school education. Our insights and observations highlight the challenges, opportunities, and promise of what primary education could be and what that means for us all. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Bob Baxley.
1: I'm Meredith Black.
0: I'm Aaron Walter. Thanks for joining us today in our conversation with Connie Liu. This
1: series is brought to you by Indeed Design a resource for designers and researchers and all UX professionals who do design work that matters. If you're thinking about working in UX or you wanna take the next step in your UX career, Indeed Design can help. Visit indeed.design for tips and tools for people of all levels. You'll find articles to help you refresh your portfolio, build more accessible products, improve team culture, and so much more. That's all at indeed.design.
2: Hey, I'm Connie Liu, and I'm the founder of Project Invent, an uh, education nonprofit to empower students to invent for social good, and I'm embarking on something new now.
0: Okay, well, you know the drill. We're going to start with the lightning round. You ready to play? Ready to go. 11 questions written just for you. Okay. Okay, here we go. Software or hardware? Hardware. East Coast or West Coast?
2: West Coast.
0: Atlas or Globe?
2: Globe.
0: Classroom or Field Trip. Field trip. Audio or video? Video. Take home or open book?
2: Take home.
0: Literature or cinema? Cinema. By the book or against the rules?
2: Against the rules.
0: Zero to one or one to a hundred?
2: Zero to one.
0: Mentor or coach? Coach. Wisdom or beauty? Wisdom. Nice.
2: Those are fun ones.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't stressful. (laughs) So Connie, you mentioned at the intro, you're founding a Project Invent, and I've known you through that for a few years now. We were introduced by a mutual friend. I'm wondering for the listeners, if you could just explain a little bit what Project Invent is and the success that the organization's had to date.
2: Yeah, definitely. So Project Invent is a national nonprofit. We work with students to empower them to invent tech for social good. So we train teachers and then they run programs in their school where they get students solving real problems in their community that they're passionate about. So students have made everything from helmet that can detect early signs of concussion because we're seeing a lot of football players on their home football team having to miss school because of injuries on the football field to smart wallet to help blind individuals detect bill denominations. The United States is one of the only countries that has currency that's not blind friendly. And this was a problem that students found and were super passionate about. So we really want to spark their interest and curiosity in the world and be able to do something about it. Luckily, we've been able to reach, I think thousands of students now, is now an accurate statement, and over a hundred schools across the country in half the states. So really excited to see that grow over the last four years.
0: Yeah, I think last year it was at fifty different high schools where you had the program mm-hmm, going. Exactly. Yeah, and then a typical unit would be some kids basically playing the role of product manager and some designers and some engineers. Yeah,
2: that'd be a great way to put it. You can think of it as a little startup. That's what the students like to describe it as as well.
1: What was the impetus for a Project Invent?
2: Great question. For me, I went to MIT as an undergrad, and growing up was really by the books as a student. I memorized a lot of facts, bubbled in a lot of answers, and like was really good at that test-taking model. And that was what I knew as what education and learning was. When I got to MIT, I got this opportunity to work on a project called Finger Reader with one of the research labs there. So it was a camera mounted on a ring to help blind people read on the go. And working on that was this transformative experience for me of thinking, oh my gosh, there are problems in the world that are unsolved and I have ideas in my brain that can literally change the world if I just make them happen. And at first it was this feeling of excitement and then that transformed into an anger at the education system of how can we teach whole generations of students in this way that you're only teaching them how to learn the facts that we already know rather than solve new problems and actually make a difference in the world. So Start a Project Invent as a movement for how do we make the classroom a place where students are empowered to make a difference.
3: Connie, I'm going to sort of like interpret and, and maybe I'm totally wrong here, but you described yourself when you were younger as kind of understanding the education system of like, I can take the tests, I can study the right facts, I can memorize it. You kind of optimizing for that, like definitely coloring in the lines. You get into MIT, you went to Stanford, you were also at Harvard as well. So it's like really impressive and like academic. It's like the peak of awesomeness to be able to do that. But what you're describing is like just kind of blowing it all up. And what you've done is very independent. Was there a struggle that was involved in your process to discover what you're passionate about and pursue Project Invent and what you're doing next?
2: Yeah, I think there was a lot of tension as I was making that decision. First, making the decision to become a teacher after going to MIT. I would say MIT as a university is one of the closest to a trade school of graduating a lot of people into a very similar profession. Of Basically, everyone goes out and is a software engineer. And I would say the second most is like consultant. So I didn't know anyone else who was going into education or being a teacher. So when I made that decision, I remember hiding it for a long time. I had already signed my offer letter. And then when friends would ask me, oh, what are you doing after graduation? I remember I like came up with a term. I was like, I'm going to go be a classroom designer. And then I would <laughs> say that for a while. And I was like, this is dumb. I should just say I'm going to be a teacher. Why am I so ashamed of it? And I think a lot of it was just being around a certain expectation of you're supposed to do something, especially when you've achieved at a certain level, you have that expectation to do that. Then there is the added like pressure of, I mean, female engineers are just hard to come by. So there's that pressure of like, okay, well, I'm abandoning a field where I could be really making an impact by just who I am and wanting to be a role model for others. And I think there is that pressure too of like, Letting go of something that is kind of known to be something that people like me leave. And then the parent pressure, too, of why would you take all the investment we gave for you to have a stable, really financially secure job and go take something that would give you half or less of salary that you would be making otherwise? So I think by making that decision at first, though, that helped me find it less scary to make the decision to do entrepreneurship and make a $0 salary and just try new things that I would have otherwise had a lot of trouble making.
0: That teaching job, this was the job at Nueva?
2: Mm -hmm, Exactly.
0: Yeah. So maybe you could talk for listeners that are outside Silicon Valley, maybe you could talk just a little bit about Nueva because it's not, it's not, shall we say, a normal school. Yeah. It's a very special, special place. Nueva is a
2: very special place. I remember that when I was looking for a teaching job, I made this like giant spreadsheet of probably like 200 or 300 schools that are like, they're doing something different. They're trying to be innovative. And Nuevo was high up on that list. Nueva's is a K to 12 private school. And they were one of the first to ever have design thinking in K-12. So they worked directly with the Stanford D school to pilot the first time design thinking was brought into the classroom at that level. And then now it's more of a movement across both public schools, private schools, and just general elementary and secondary education, which I think was like foundation that allowed something like Project Invent to exist. Because by making design thinking such a part of the lexicon of education, especially in K 12, that's what made it possible to do more project based learning and problem solving for students.
1: You know, it's interesting. Because this sounds so normal to us. We're all designers. We do design thinking every day. Was there kind of a hard pitch or is there still a hard pitch or sell that you actually have to give to people to encourage design thinking into curriculum? Or is it something that people, I mean, it sounds like people are more open to it now, but like, are you still getting resistance?
2: I would say it depends on the audience. I think that teachers are now quite open to it. I think they're also seeing the on the ground, we need to do something different in these classrooms, especially during COVID. We actually saw an influx of teachers joining our program because just what was happening in the classroom of what became virtual watching videos and sending home worksheets just wasn't working for kids. And they got a little more freedom during that time to experiment with more innovative ways of learning. And then we had developed a way for students to be able to solve problems creatively in their community virtually as well. So a lot more teachers were willing to bring that sort of learning in. When we talk to administrators, it's sometimes a little harder because they have very different metrics and decision-making that they need to do. They are beholden to federal and state standards of the classroom. And oftentimes that looks like we need you to get this test score on this subject. And design thinking is just not one of those subjects. When we can get more of the flexible discretionary budget, that's where design thinking can fit. The dream would be for there to be an actual bucket for something like design thinking and creative problem solving.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because the move to project-based learning is a its a national movement. I mean, our kids went through that in elementary school, less so, a little bit less so in high school here in Silicon Valley. But hearing you talk about it, I can now appreciate how the metric-driven focus of standardized testing has trapped the educational system into a certain way of being that's making it virtually impossible for them to innovate right at a moment in history when they need to be thinking wildly differently about how to educate kids because they have no idea what they're educating them for.
2: Yeah, it's pretty difficult and pretty interesting to think about how something like a standardized test creates such trickle-down effects on how people budget than how a classroom needs to run, than what a teacher is allowed to do with the hours in their day, what they're allowed to do with the space and how they design it. I think that that single decision to kind of be able to have to hold classrooms to a specific standard that kind of restricts creativity in a lot of classrooms is a really important one that has a lot of effects.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, speaking of restricting creativity, I grew up in the era where if you wanted to be creative, that was something you did on the side, right? Like you go to school and you get the grades and, you know, you go into, you know, no offense to any of these careers, but like accounting or sales or business development or, or any of these and anything else that was creative was like, you do that on your own time. And I think that there's definitely a mentality that's switching. Do you see that in what you're doing? And do you see that with the parents? I mean, because, you know, like I said, my parents are giving me pressure to go one route. So I'm just, I'm curious. The mentality is shifting with the kids and how they're learning, but are you seeing that shift with the parents?
2: Yeah. I think one of my favorite images and quotes is, I think it's an Einstein quote of like, if you ask a fish to climb a tree, it will fail. And I think that was how the school system was designed for a really long time of, we had one way of evaluating kids on what success looks like, and the creative kids just felt like misfits. And I think that makes it really difficult for students to feel like they are thriving. I think you're totally right that students are kind of seeing that. I think even with like Generation C, you see a lot of them kind of owning their, let's be our individual selves a lot more, which I think is a really powerful movement that will continue to kind of push the boundaries of what we ask for when we try to put everyone into a mold. I think with parents, there's still difficulty when, I would say, in addition to standardized testing, that other force is college admissions. And I think parents, in a very good faith way, just want the best for their kids and want them to be able to get into college and have a secure career. And the more we can redefine what that looks like and that there is not just doctor and lawyer that are the only ways to find a secure career. We can be a designer and make a six-figure paycheck or we can be a content producer. I think that's going to be really eye-opening and a lot more freeing for the next generations.
3: Yeah, it's interesting kind of what you're touching on. There is a theme with parental pressure and the nature of the way that education is structured. I've seen this when I visited universities that students feel so much anxiety and so much stress. It's almost like they're in a pressure cooker and someone else is essentially making most of the hard decisions for their life, like what they're going to do and what they're going to pursue, what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. And it kind of squeezes the creative thinking, independence and the propensity for risk. How have you seen students overcome that? How do people overcome that? And how could we be more helpful with that?
2: I think the really important part of being able to redesign education is to be able to create a sandbox for kids to get exposed to safe risk more often. I think that's one of the beauties of having students solve real-world problems, because then they're actually going out, seeing that they fail, and that it's okay to fail. I think One of the things we saw for classrooms that are more by the books, when we bring in a program like Project Invent, the kids are really scared to just like even write down an idea on a post-it note for the first few days. And when you go to a classroom where they have gotten constant exposure to, hey, it's okay to just come up with ideas. It's okay to just try things. Like they're coming up with like 30 to 40 ideas in five minutes. And then when you go to a classroom where they were not taught that, they write down like maybe two or three and then they hide them from you. They won't even let you look at them because the way that we're teaching in classrooms so much about getting the right answer. So I think a lot of it is redesigning how we educate our kids in a way that teaches that it is okay to fail. Failure is resilience. Failure is about learning. And I think a lot of, That is learned not through kind of taking a test, but very much by just trying things that don't have an answer, because then there's no answer book that you're beholden to. You can just come up with things. And if it works, like the world is what tells you if it works, not the back of the book.
1: Are you seeing any difference with gender? Ooh,
2: I think with the problems that students decide to solve. By being able to have them choose where they want to take risk, I think there's a big difference in what like gets them up in the morning and what they're passionate about. There was this one year when I was a teacher, when I was running Project Invent as a class that we had, I think it was like 15 girls in that class and 10 of them decided to focus on, I want to design for preventing sexual assault. And that was just a really powerful moment to see that all of them were so passionate about solving this issue and taking their hand on it because they just saw that as the biggest issue that was facing their friends and people like them and something that they were nervous for for going to college. And being able to have more diverse problem solvers gives us the approaches and the passions of very, very different types of thinkers and problem solvers. So I think it's huge to be able to empower as many people as possible to think, hey, I can do something about this.
0: You know, it's interesting you, you just used the phrase problem solver. I mean, I've seen this in a couple of different places, too, where you know, inner city black kids might take on different problems than suburban white kids. And you just described a scenario where young women were taking on a different problem than their male counterparts. And I remember one of the projects that I saw was some guys who'd come together to create a system so that one of their friends who uh, had some mobility issues could play Minecraft with them because that was such a social outlet for them. And we often talk about diversity in terms of problem solving. I think there's something about diversity with problem identification. Uh, just the bodies that we inhabit allow us to move through the world in certain ways. We just see the world through this very specific demographic lens, and it's very hard to understand the experiences that other people are having. And so finding some way to empower them so they can say, no, this is a problem worth solving because it's one that I deal with is really valuable.
2: I love that framing. because I think the crux of it is how can we get a diversity of problem finders because The lived experience of someone you just can't replicate with like reading as much as you try to expose yourself to how someone else's life has looked. You just won't have that same like fire and desire that someone who has really seen that firsthand can approach a problem with. It's really great to have more people tackle social impact problems. Even better is that everyone feels like they can tackle what problem is closest to them because they're going to be able to be more resilient when the times get tough because they know how close to home solving that problem hits.
3: What role does teaching play in your own learning process?
2: I've loved teaching as a way to get more confident in the content myself of being able to like synthesize something in a way that, can make sense of a world for someone new to it, I think is such a beautiful thing. Like building curriculum is this incredible process of like, when you're a beginner to something, everything's new. So you're just consuming. You're like, wow, this is all such cool content. And then you try to explain it to someone, it all comes out as like gobbledygook because all you have is like a bucket of content. And then when you're designing curriculum or trying to teach it back, the magic of it is being able to like create smaller buckets or like little ways of framing it to help someone else consume that knowledge in a more meaningful way. So one way, for example, that I would always frame, let's say the difference in how we serve people with design in the world and the importance of design in the world. I would always show this image of Here's what it looks like in a donation collection center. It's usually like piles of clothing, piles of just stuff. And here's an Amazon warehouse. And the same technology can be used in both. But for some reason, we're serving one in the capitalist system with really, really good design and one with not. It's not that the tech is not available. It is that people are not applying design to the problems that matter. You can apply design to the problems that matter. And I think... That in seeing that click for students, because a lot of them don't see themselves as technologists. They're like, "Ah, I don't know if I can like create something wholly new. But then when you show them two images that are this exists, we just need people who care. They're like, I can be that person who cares, and that's really powerful to be able to like create those framings that really hit for a learner at a certain point in their life.
1: So, you started Project Invent. You've gone through this journey. What's next? Why are you jumping out of this and what's next for you?
2: I think so much of the inspiration of getting to start Project Invent and see all these students get inspired also sparked the question of what does inspiration and continuing to grow and develop as an adult look like? I think we have this beautiful thing of school where you have six, seven hours in your day where your only job is to learn. And then when you become an adult, that time is meant for work, but I feel like there's still a desire and need to continue to learn and develop and grow. So now I'm thinking a lot more about how do we create workplaces that help people learn, develop and grow. I think mentorship, coaching, being able to like create time for listening to content like this, I think all of that is such a powerful thing to be able to create space for an adult's life so we can all be that lifelong learner. So Exploring that and seeing what comes
0: out of it. Yeah, There's like this thread of empowering others that you've carried through all this stuff that but I, I think maybe there was something about that project you worked on at MIT and how you could help people who had vision impairment and then moving that into Project Invent. And this is consistent also with your answer about the zero to one, one to a hundred thing, like Project Invent, you did the zero to, to one thing, you actually did zero to about 60, I think, in terms (laughs) of how many schools are participating. And then maybe it's time to set that aside. And now you're looking for other avenues to empower others. You know, when you think about coaching and mentoring and stuff like that, do you think about helping people that are older than you? Because you're, I think, in your mid-20s. Yeah, Yeah, in your 20s. So what phase of the life journey do you look at?
2: Yeah, I would say any age postgraduate. I, I think I have a soft spot in my heart for like this 20s, 30s range. That's where I'm at now and where a lot of my classmates that I just were at Stanford with are at and being able to see that we all took two years out of our lives to take time off of work to be able to learn. What if their work itself was a place where you could have that learning and reflection that we so luckily got by taking a break, but that isn't possible for everyone. So especially those 20s, 30s. But my dream is to really think about this lifelong learning across this age range that we get to live.
0: When you you think about people in their 20s or 30s, is that a developmental cohort you're looking at? Like you're kind of perpetually interested in people that are at that stage of their life? Or do you think it's a generational cohort? uh, Because when you're sort of a mainstream millennial in terms of your generational positioning, but when you were teaching at Nueva, your students would have been Gen Z. And so you sort of had this interesting up-close view of the two generations. And so I'm just wondering if you're attached to sort of a generational cohort or a developmental period.
2: Maybe the thing I'm attached to is more exciting changes that I see in different industries. Of I think the thing that I noticed in education was there is this whole movement of project-based learning, and that's what I attach myself to, of, wait, something interesting is happening that's different than what I grew up with. And I can be part of this movement to create something that's different and better and more designed for what we need now. I think the same thing's happening in the workforce and HR space right now of how do we design companies to retain people? Whatever the intention is of retaining or helping people grow and thrive, all of it is kind of a movement that's happening now. We need to redesign the workspace. So I feel like I'm kind of chasing that movement that I'm kind of seeing things move to.
3: And is there a scope to the way that you think about learning in a professional situation, professional context? Is that, hey, let's learn how to be better teammates, better collaborators, or is it, let's learn to play the guitar and, you know, how to meditate? Like, what's the scope of learning?
2: To me, the thing that has always sparked is how can I create transformational learning experiences for individuals? So, the impact moment for me with working on finger reader at MIT was that I had this like tectonic shift in my brain of, I thought I could only take tests really well. And now I believe I can change the world. And I think that's why for Project Invent, we never did like one-time workshops because I don't believe that's a transformation. I believe that's like a spark, maybe an inspiration, but not a transformation. The thing I want to see in the workplace too is what if people's relationships with each other could be transformed? Or what if someone's sense of self could be changed completely by having a great mentor or having a great coach? I think those are the things that really spark for me rather than like, I want to make sure someone gets a little bit better at JavaScript. Like that's not as exciting to me.
0: That's an amazing phrase, that transformational learning experience, (laughs) because in talking to other designers, you know, because they have all the, almost all of them have some story from high school or college where they went through that same risk thing that you've mentioned and not feeling that they fit in and their parents didn't really approve of their interest in art or design. And almost all of them talk about some transformational learning experience that is often it's some particular teacher and they can describe it in really clear, very precise ways. And it's super powerful when you, when you hit it with folks. I've always sort of looked at it and felt that it seemed awfully random and didn't scale. And so it's interesting because I, I sense that maybe what you were trying to do with Project Invent was you were trying to create a curriculum that would be an incubator for that to happen instead of it just being this random force of some, you know, oh, I was just lucky because I pulled Mr. Randall for science that one year and it changed my life. Yeah, you know? <laughs>
2: exactly. I think that's exactly how I would put it of how do we scale these transformation moments. A lot of the times it's either a person and I think that has been true for me too. It's either people in my life of really transformational teachers or coaches or like project experiences where something happened that just really opened my eyes. So I think like projects and people are kind of the things that we want to find. Who are those people who can create that moment for more? What are those projects that can create that moment for more people.
1: So like many listeners of this podcast, you are going through this kind of time of reconsidering, right? You've gone from project invent to now, you know, switching your career. What's that been like for you? Do you have like a thought process or how do you motivate yourself or build up the courage to kind of jump to the next big thing? Because I think a lot of people can get stuck where they're at.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm in the thick of it. So (laughs) I'll like stream of consciousness what, what I've kind of been going through lately. I think one, I just know I get really giddy about coming up with new ideas and coming up with a new insight for something, just like that feeling is so unreplicable that I feel like my like chase for when I'm at a pivot point or a reconsidering point is what gives me that feeling of excitement and joy and trying to find those moments again. So I know that entrepreneurship gives me that for project and I felt like it was at the point where someone else could give it more energy and that energy that could bring it to that next level. But the spark and energy that I can bring is very much at that early stage. So trying to always be thinking about and listening to, I guess, my own, emotions and feeling about is that spark hitting and is it hitting at like the right cadence and frequency is kind of what I look for.
3: Is there a way that all of us can create a transformational learning experience just for ourselves? Have you ever done that for yourself or has it always been an external force upon you?
2: Well, I would say you can create it for yourself, but probably involves other people too. So it's who you surround yourself with and like inviting new projects and new people into your life. I think every point that I would call a transformational moment for me, it was preceded by a scary moment. So for example, when I agreed to work on the finger reader project in college, I remember the professor asked me like, just a really like throwaway question of like, do you like hardware or software more? I froze, I was like, I literally don't know what hardware and software mean. And so I was just said hardware because it was the first option he gave, but being able to opt in even when something was scary rather than kind of like fade away, I think has been the open door to a lot of things. Another transformation moment, I would say is both leaving Project Invent and doing this thing we have at Stanford called Talk, invited coaches into my life One of them was a communications coach to teach me how to tell my story. And one of them was an executive coach to be able to help me really think about like, how do I leave intentionally? Both of those decisions to do each of those things of like sharing my personal story and a lot of things from my past to like a public audience and leaving something that I like dearly, dearly love and really want to succeed and and handing that to someone else. I think both of those moments are really scary, but by saying yes to them, like they led to really transformational moments with these coaches to help me have realizations that I wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Yeah, your journey's interesting because it manifests something a couple of our other guests said in season two. So Koshik Panchal, who was talking about creativity, he, he talked about the point of creating things was so that you could show them to others so that you could learn. And he sort of approached creative expression as, as a project. It's project-based learning is kind of how he, how he thinks about creativity. And it, it, it completely changes the anxiety people feel around creating stuff because you know, it shifts it from feeling like you're trying to express yourself and represent yourself to, oh, I'm just going to put stuff out there and make mistakes and show it to people. I'm going to learn from it and it's going to be great. And so Kosha kind of had this project-based learning approach to creativity. And then Ed Batista, who's a, an executive coach there at, uh, and teaches there at Stanford, he has this concept of self-coaching, which is where you kind of assemble these small groups of people and you're sort of pushing each other. And that's, you know, consistent with your point about who you surround yourself with.
2: Yeah, I feel like a lot of it is like both lowering your guard and kind of inviting more. I like to think of it as like I'm increasing my surface area for serendipity. I'll say yes to things, I'll see what comes my way, and then I'll like make sure that I'm open to those moments.
0: That's such a great phrase. Wow. I know. Wow.
1: Wow. I just wrote that one down.
0: (laughs) just to
3: pick up on that phrase, there's a certain aspect of learning. It's just exposure. It's like how many different types of topics and things might you get exposed to? It's like increases in value until you're oversaturated and then it decreases in value. So I'm curious how you think about exposing yourself or the student experience, the learning experience to exposing to lots of different types of topics and when it becomes too much?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think if I were to design an education experience from scratch, I would have students just pursue their interests to the limit and then go explore something new. And I think through that exploration and agency of deciding what they want to explore, I think they'll have a really large surface area of serendipity just by choosing something like baseball and going down the rabbit hole of not only playing the sport, but the history of the sport and the science of the sport. You're learning a ton and you're retaining a lot more than the way that classrooms are currently designed where you're just handed facts that you didn't really ask for. I think Being able to trust a student to have the curiosity and engagement to go down rabbit holes and pursue that path and trust that learning will happen, I think would be a huge win for education. It's really hard to measure, which makes it almost impossible for like large scale rollout. But
3: well, this is one thing that I I think is fascinating about my learning experience. Like, you know, the things I was exposed to as a kid going through public education. There's like, you know, let's cover physics and and math and, you know, language arts and so forth. But there's a fair bit of it. My brain just wasn't ready to receive. You know, the question was not in my mind. And so therefore there was no place to receive what was coming at me. Whereas an adult, I find myself asking questions about, you know, what's the history of like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, why they're divided and why they're so different or you know, what is a mousetrap car, which I didn't know about until I started uh, learning about your history. And then I went down a rabbit hole learning about that. I chase these things all the time. And my brain now is just like ready to receive it. And learning is a joy. But the trouble is like when you're a kid and I see this in my kids, learning is a chore. It's work.
2: Yeah. I love that framing of, I almost imagine like a question is like an empty plate that you put in your brain and then The learning is food. And then if you don't have a plate available, it'll just like get thrown at you, Then you wash it off, but you don't like retain it. I think it very much is like setting up learning to be somewhere that like students can ask for it and get it when they want it. I feel like we assume the worst about kids when we kind of force learning because then we're presuming that they're not inherently curious beings who want to learn.
0: Did you see a big shift? So you mentioned a little bit with, with the pandemic and the move to remote. And I sort of have this theory that as a society, we still haven't really embraced the internet. Like the pandemic kind of got us there with remote, but we still haven't really got our heads around, wrapped around that. And just when I heard Aaron there talking about the, you know, he went down a rabbit hole. My initial instinct is, well, rabbit hole sounds like a waste of time and bad. But rabbit holes is exactly how people learn on the internet. <laughs> you know, it is like education in the context of the internet is wildly different than education in the context of the school library in a classroom. I'm just wondering, because you've learned in these different environments, you went to college in the context of the internet, you know, its early impact on society. And then, you know, you would have seen with Project Invent how the high school kids were adapting in a fully connected world. Just wondering if you have been able to conceive sort of before and after moment with the internet and where there might still be opportunity we haven't thought about yet.
2: Yeah. One thing that I feel like has been such a common theme for my love for entrepreneurship, for example, is entrepreneurship itself is a never ending string of questions. And that's why that zero to one phase is so fascinating because it's a rabbit hole where you keep asking, could this part be different? What do people think? Do I trust this person or this person? How can I test? this idea and see if someone actually likes it. It's this constant rabbit hole on being able to pursue questions is a skill in itself. I think it would be so cool if there was a curriculum or a way of schooling where we just teach students how to productively rabbit hole on the internet. I think that would be an awesome and very practical skill that's much more designed for the future of learning.
0: That's funny. That seems like maybe the only way to prepare people for an uncertain future.
2: Yeah, Exactly. Teaching them how to Google. I feel like I would always joke about I'm going to start a class (laughs) on teaching people how to Google well.
0: Well, I'd take that. That sounds like a continuing studies class, man. Sign me up for that.
1: Sign me up as well.
0: Yeah, I often joke about people like I don't know how to use Slack. It's not that I don't know how to use Slack in a UI sense. I don't really know how to use it as an effective, productive communications tool.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I can say the same about TikTok.
0: Yeah, Well, or Twitter, like all these things they're like learning how to use the tool as a, like, I know how to use a hammer and I know how to use woodworking tools, but I don't really know how to use woodworking tools. (laughs) Like, you know, there's a, there's a whole different level to really using them that I don't have at all.
2: Yeah. And I think that kind of opens up this whole like other world of there's learning through say Googling and going down a rabbit hole. And then some things are kind of like more apprenticeships where you're like watching an expert do something, kind of learning by the curiosity of observing and trying and doing projects. And I think that's where those things marry of like the skills and the knowledge.
3: So Connie, we ask all of our guests a similar question. We usually ask them, what would the 25-year-old self tell your current modern day self? But given that you're still in your 20s, it's maybe a little too close. But you today, this person who is curious and who takes risks and is an entrepreneur, you sound like a very different person from who you were, let's say, in high school, The high school version of yourself at 17. What would the 17-year-old version of you say to you today? What advice and guidance would that person give you?
2: I think as much as I love the project-based exploration question asking, I think the thing that I was really good at at 17 was having a respect and understanding for also like learning foundations and kind of gritting your teeth and doing that. So I think kind of regaining that patience for sitting in the just knowing and not solving. I think nowadays I'm very much in solving mode and how can I solve problems? I think there's something really beautiful about just like being – immersed in knowledge that has no current purpose
3: love that that's great and where can people learn more about you and what you're up to
2: i would say the easiest ways are i have a web personal website which is com, and then my forever love of my life creation of project Invent. you can find at projectinvent.org
3: fantastic
2: connie thank you so much for being on the show thank you for having me this is so fun
1: Connie Liu. That was so fun and inspiring to talk to her.
3: And a different angle on things, too, which I thought was kind of interesting.
1: Such a different angle. Bob, what would you think?
0: Well, obviously, I've known Connie for a few years now, so I was really glad she could join us on the show. I do think she's got a really interesting origin story, really interesting approach. The stuff she was doing at Nueva was amazing. Project Invent, I'm fortunate to be involved in the first few years of that and got to sit through some of the demo days and see some of the projects. And it was so inspiring for me to see the stuff that these high school students would come up with. I mean, it was just mind bending to see the ideas and how far they could get along with them and also to see the different personalities already at play between, you know, the PM designer and engineering type folks. So to see these little EPD models, you know, with kids from rural Kansas, coming up with some device to follow a woman. There was one, I remember, this elderly woman who had trouble going to the grocery store because she was in a wheelchair and she didn't have anywhere to put the groceries as she was shopping. And so they invented this little cart that would follow along behind her. And the engineering kid, who was just this, you know, picturesque, super nerdy kid, had figured out how to use the motion detector from outside lights to be able to help the rover satellite cart figure out where the wheelchair was and be able to stay close to it. Somebody on the panel asked him some questions about it and he just went off about the chipset and how he had hacked this thing and that thing. He's like 17 and I was like, Oh my God, like these kids are just amazing for me. Like being around Connie had just unlocked so much optimism and enthusiasm and excitement for me to see what that generation was capable of.
3: Yeah. I really liked what Connie's doing to reframe learning. So she's, In the process of kind of like helping high school students or younger kids rethink learning and this project based learning, I think it also calls into question for adults like us what role does learning play in our life? And the older I get, the more I realize how important feeding my brain is that I have to feed my brain new things and discover new things and try new things. And when I don't do that, I feel bored and dissatisfied you know like figuring out learning how to learn or how to create opportunities to learn is so important for my satisfaction and now that i'm i'm in this space i'm not in school i'm not you know having to follow the direction of someone else in my learning path i'm discovering on my own it's just super fun i'm just curious and i'm constantly just trying new things and learning new things and that creates lots of opportunities to connect what's seemingly disconnected.
1: Do you think the reason is, is because you want to do it and you're not forced to do it?
3: Totally. I mean, like the motivation is there. I want to do it. So no one's forcing me, but I do think there's something to what Connie said in the last piece of like her younger self, her high school self to her, you know, late 20s self of sometimes you just have to sit down and learn the fundamentals. This has always plagued me with music because I just want to like be free with music, but you also have to just like sit down and memorize the stuff and practice it and get your body like accustomed to moving in a certain way. And I struggle to just sit down and like do the homework.
0: Yeah. Meredith, to go to your question though, I think it's that everybody wants to do this stuff. It's just, they want to follow their own natural curiosities. When you're in school, if you talk to high school students, they're almost all universally happy to go back to school when it starts again. Even at like a a Christmas break, they almost all want to go back to school. And some of it's the social stuff, but they also like they really enjoy learning. They just want to have more control over what they're learning about and the style in which they're learning. I think everyone just has such intense curiosity that fuels them and motivates them all the time. They just haven't figured out how to channel it either in a way that's socially acceptable or in a way that they're giving themselves permission to pursue it.
3: I actually, I want to push back on that, Bob, because there's one thing that I've seen is people fall into the entertainment trap. It's like they just want to be entertained and they're looking for entertainment all the time. That drives me crazy, personally, because it feels like it is a trap. Like if someone else is entertaining you, you're not actually really using your mind. You're just sort of like yeah. witnessing the world.
1: Well, I don't know. I kind of want to push back on that. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> we're pushing back. But I think it's just another, it's a different way of learning, right? Like it's just a different way of understanding. I mean, like you think of entertainment, like I could be watching the History Channel and learning about our founding fathers, or I could be reading a really dry textbook and I'd much rather be watching the History Channel. Does that mean just because it's quote unquote, educational and entertaining that I'm not going to like necessarily absorb the information. No, it just means I absorbed it differently.
3: Sure. But I mean, there's a fair bit of stuff that we can just like, do we learn anything by watching real housewives? Like I enjoy it- entertainment as much as anybody else, but there is such a thing as too much.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Aaron. Look, I think it's kind of a media information diet question, right? And people can just end up eating too many potato chips You know, and you have to wonder if eventually you get sick, or you, you know, you get unhappy with your body and how you're feeling, and do you finally break down and have a salad? And so I think it's just—do people learn how to self-regulate? And uh, you know, it's hard to to exactly say what other people's motivations are. I I do think at the core, people are curious, and maybe they fall into a certain habit of letting entertainment carry them away um, as some sort of escape. Maybe because there's another friction in their life that they're dealing with, but I suppose choose to believe. That human beings are naturally curious creatures, that that is something endemic to the species, and that if we can find ways to turn that loose in people, that they will sort of naturally follow that path.
3: Did either one of you growing up have a transformational learning experience?
0: Yeah, when I was in the seventh grade, the school I was going to got a Wang computer which in retrospect was quite a big thing. I've, I've looked up what it would cost now and how old the machine was. It was a 4K machine with a cassette deck to store the programs. And my math teacher, Miss Reeves, started teaching us how to program in BASIC, and I just completely took to it and fell in love with programming. And in that moment, I just became completely enamored with computing and with programming and probably should have gone on to be a programmer and somehow got sidetracked as a designer with studying history and film along the way. But... Yeah. I mean, just sitting down at that computer, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was phenomenal.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I would call it transformational because it wasn't necessarily positive, but I went to an all-girls high school, right? My class was 81 ladies. That's what I graduated with. And then I switched to college and I actually, I loved learning in high school. I hated learning in college. I absolutely wanted to get through college faster than anything. I mean, I switched to universities, and I still finished in three and a half years. I wanted out so badly. And I think for me, it was I didn't feel comfortable in my surroundings. I feel like that early experience of going to an all-girls high school where I was empowered to you know, speak up and raise my hand completely dwarfed my learning in college because I was you know around other genders, and I didn't feel as powerful as I used to feel. So that's why I kind of push back with you, Aaron, about the entertainment thing is because now I love to learn. It's just at my own pace and my own style. And it doesn't feel like I have like societal pressure of sitting in a classroom with, you know, 500 other people or getting called on and being forced to know an answer or feel like looking like an idiot.
3: Yeah. That must've been a difficult transition.
0: Yeah. There's a real time evaluation and judgment and hierarchy mechanic to what we think of as a historic classroom, which I think sucks all the enthusiasm out of people, you know, because it becomes a status thing of who's the smartest in the, you know, you want to be the smartest in the class, but not too smart. You know, there's, there's a lot there. It's also just amazing when you start talking to people about their high school and college experience and elementary school, like how powerful our educational experiences are, like what a formative thing they are for all of us. And yet kind of how random they are. It's just, which neighborhood did you live in? And did you go to the neighborhood school or not? Or did you maybe go to a private school or not? And who was your teacher? Because it's just random who you got in the schedule that year.
1: But that's also life in general, right? Not everything's going to be so predictable and things are going to lead you down different paths. So that's just one of the elements. Yeah. I think my favorite quote and the thing that I want to frame in my office right now is increasing my surface area for serendipity.
3: Totally, I mean,
1: so well said and so true. And I think if we all put that lens on, we could probably have much happier and more fulfilled lives. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Pate of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing. But satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.